what is this primarily talking about? Besides women. Wisdom and the lack thereof. Wisdom versus folly, essentially. Okay, so that'll give us a clue on how to interpret uh, verses 26 and also verse 28. So you can breathe a little easier. How's that? But we'll get to it hopefully tonight. Um, so it is, it is talking about wisdom. Um, elsewhere, you know, Job says that wisdom is pricier than pearls. Uh, Solomon said in Proverbs 8 that wisdom is better than jewels. And then in uh, Proverbs 16, 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold. Um, and then he describes wisdom as a fountain, uh, like a bubbling brook in uh, Proverbs 18. So he's, he's really underscoring wisdom, but then he's also going to ask us to look at it realistically. I'll explain as we go. All right. Um, so he begins by comparing wisdom uh, strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. So what this is talking about, and you, we see this in the Gospels where you would have, and also in the Old Testament where you would have the elders, they would come and they would sit at the gate of the city. So it wasn't, they didn't have the same type of governmental structure that we have today with, you, you know, but they didn't have the three branches like we have, the executive, the uh, congressional, and the judicial. Um, but you, you, your leaders um, were a group of men. That's why you have like the Sanhedrin uh, later on, which was a group of 70. And I would imagine with that many men, that many men and them being Jews, remember you put 10 Jews in a room and you end up with what? 12 different opinions. I don't know how they got anything done. But anyway, uh, this is referring to this group of leaders, the, the, probably the elders of the city. And that wisdom strength, uh, strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. So although they may come to a consensus and be able to decide in a, a certain direction, um, uh, wisdom strengthens the wise. Notice it says the wise. Why does it say wisdom strengthens the wise? Think about that a second. Any thoughts on that? Because it has to be properly stewarded, correct? And you have a comparison here between wisdom and folly. So wisdom is out there, but it doesn't mean that people either can obtain it or it doesn't mean that if they can obtain it, that they handle it well. So there, it's almost a matter of stewardship where they're not able to handle, uh, to, to steward that which they've been given. Um, a couple of things about give, uh, wisdom. I'm going to throw them out there to you sort of fast, but um, uh, wisdom governs the thought. 
So a wise person knows how to think about things in a God-centered way. So wisdom is intended to govern the thought. Um, wisdom governs the, our will. So a wise person knows what choices to make in life. Wisdom governs our speech. So a wise person knows what to say and what not to say. And then wisdom governs our action. <coughs> excuse me, our actions. So that the wise person knows what to do in any and every situation. And so one of the things we were talking about this morning was, remember WWJD? What would Jesus do? Now, I, I, I kind of like that, to be honest with you. I don't push it, but because anything that becomes a cliche and a bumper sticker, I just abhor. I just, that's just who I am. All right, that's my issue. But, but, but it, was, it was brought up, this morning that it's not even so much what would Jesus do, but it would be how would Jesus do that? It's in the same ball game. Someone who has knowledge but doesn't know how to apply it. Or someone who has the understanding However, he, he or she got it, but they have the understanding of what Jesus would do, but they have no sense about how to go about it because they, they lack wisdom. And, and so that's part of what I think this is referring to here, uh, where wisdom strengthens the wise. So wisdom, again, if, um, governs the thought, Governs the will, governs the speech, and governs the actions. And that's where you, I think when you think, I think when you think about that, that might help you discern a little bit more of the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Because a lot of people have knowledge. Um, <laughs> Somebody said, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every so often, right? You say that? I don't think I've ever heard you say that. We'll have to get you to do that maybe. No, I'm kidding. But, but even a, a, a blind squirrel finds a nut every so often, right? So this idea of there's something that we are called beyond general knowledge. And in that regard, for those who are wise, that is, for those who, who, are, who have the sense of wisdom to properly steward the greater insight, that's another word for wisdom, uh, it makes them stronger than ten rulers of a city. Again, he's, he's, he's making a comparison here. And... Like the Proverbs, are, now, are, when we read the Proverbs, and matter of fact, the, uh, the proverb for tomorrow and the proverb of last night kind of speaks into this passage, by the way. But are the Proverbs, when we read them, are they describing something that is always true? John says no. 
because he, he's convinced that even a blind squirrel. Anyway, I, and I would agree with you, Don. I, I, I think the Proverbs describe things that are generally true. And, and that's, I think that's part of the uh, wisdom that we need to apply even in reading these. Uh, I think what we have here in verses 19 through 29 is a description of things, A, that are generally true, but also, B, it is a description of some things that Solomon is writing out of his own experience that may not really have any type of a universal application. But I have, a, I, I have a very strong view of inspiration of Scripture, but not that the Scripture is in error, but this idea of inerrancy is kind of a, a, a metric that we use to try to say, well, if it's in the Bible, it's got to be true all the time. And I think that's, first of all, I think it's just a false metric. And the Bible, while, while Jesus says thy word is truth, and I think it's John 17, um, the Bible refers to itself as being God-breathed. And therefore, in that regard, the piano sounds like a piano. The guitar sounds like a guitar. The clarinet, since we're talking about breathing, sounds like a clarinet, and the trumpet sounds like a trumpet. And in other words... God uses the culture, the environment, the mindset, the understanding, the intellect, the educational background of those who pen the scriptures. So that's reflected in their writings. Does that make any sense? And so what we have here, and and I'm talking specifically about not being able to find any woman that's righteous, all right? What you have here is someone who's speaking probably from their own experience, or, and it's very hard to discern in reading this, he's using a hyperbole. What is a hyperbole? An incredible exaggeration to make a point. That was like, hyperbole would be, you know, it, it took Mary and I eight hours to walk here from our house tonight. And number one, we didn't walk. Number two, it wouldn't have taken us eight. It would have taken us seven. But, uh, but anyway, uh, but the Hebrew at times, particularly the Hebrew scriptures at times, will use a hyperbole because the exaggeration to try to emphasize a point. That's a possibility. I read some other things that I totally disagree with, but if we have time, I'll throw them out there for you anyway. Just, just, to, you know, just to give you something to uh, think about. Because if anything else, this is how some of the church interprets these things. That's why I would want to throw these out. So, 20. For there is not a just man on earth who does, does good and does not sin. Isn't that interesting? There is not a just man. What is, uh, uh, that word just could also be translated. I don't know if any of your translations say this. But that where it says, for there is not a just man, it could be righteous. You have righteous? You have righteous? You have righteous. Okay. Um, so there is not a righteous man 
on earth who does not who who on earth who does good and does not sin. So what do you think of that? You think it's true. Never sin. I'm going to read to you New King James, Philippians 3 9, where Paul speaking, he says, and being found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which, what is the that which? He's talking about righteousness. That which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. I like the way the Christian Standard Bible actually words it a little bit better. I'll read that to you. And being found in him that is found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one, one what? One righteousness, one status between him and God. One, got to find it, that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. All right. So that that's something to consider when we're talking about um, talking about righteousness, but he's bringing up the idea that that even though a person is righteous, not really there's not one that does good. Romans three twenty three, and he's quoting Isaiah. There's none good, none, no, not one. Now that's generally accepted or understood in the realm of Paul talking about unbelievers. But remember, what, what, what are we talking about here in verses 19 through 29? Wisdom. Okay, so if we're talking about wisdom, he's giving us some things to think about. Um, now, this doesn't mean that nobody can bear the name righteous or, or be called righteous. I don't think that's what he's saying here at all. But I did some digging. I'm horrible at the Hebrews, so bear with this. It's in the imperfect, but it's not a tense. Hebrew doesn't have tense like Greek and English, all right? So it's considered imperfect, which refers to the kind of action that is being described, not necessarily the time of the action or the status of the person who is doing the action. Does that make sense? All right, so this is, he, again, I, Hebrew is so difficult, um, it, it's really underscoring the idea of what a person does. And, you know, somebody even brought it up today. Well, you know, the idea of love the sinner, hate the sin. And he said, well, isn't the sin a part of the sinner? I'm like, well, of course it is. Of course it is. I think, I think that's part of this is what bears this out. Um, but... What this is also telling us is on occasion, the righteous man, the righteous woman, the righteous person will fall. But still they are called righteous even though they have moral faults. Remember Paul, Philippians 3, not obtaining a righteousness of my own which is of the law, but through a righteousness through faith. And the, the thing about faith, 
is a couple of things. Hopefully it grows. Hopefully it grows. Does it ever waver? A few of you. <laughs> Some of you don't know what I'm talking about. I'm kidding. Uh, and so, yes, our faith wavers, but even as our faith wavers, it doesn't change our status, but it can change what we think, what we say, and what we do. Again, this is all wrapped around wisdom, and part of wisdom informs what we think, what we say, what we do. Um, so that's part of what he's bringing out here, and, and what he's not saying, but I think what he's strongly implying is don't be so surprised when Christians sin. Don't be so surprised. And that one's a hard one for me at times. You know, but the reality is we all sin. We all just have different sins. And we all have those sins that we tell ourselves we would never do but we, we want to rain fire and brimstone upon those who do it. But then there's the irony of, remember Jimmy Baker? Right? Jimmy Baker fooling around with some woman. And who was one of his harshest critics, besides a lot of them? Jimmy Swaggart. And it turns out Jimmy Swaggart was hanging out with prostitutes. You know, and so, it, and part of that is, is that our sins look a whole lot worse on someone else than they do on us. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't quite so bad as Jimmy. Yeah. Because there's only one prostitute, not a dozen, right? You know, and so we will give ourselves, we will lie to ourselves deceive ourselves sometimes to try to justify the things that we've decided that we want to indulge in. But it's also telling, I, I, I mean, and also this implies, doesn't come out and say it, but this implies the grace of God. Because there's like an expectation that, that God understands. He, he knows that we are, uh, we are but dust. The scripture tells us. Um, so he understands our frailty. He was tempted in all things, Jesus, was tempted in all things like we are yet without sin. And, and of course, he's God. So that should seem to be like, okay, almost like a no-brainer, but he was also human. And he really could have ruled the world any way he wanted. He really could have. Um, not, even the temptations, put those aside for a second. The three temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And, and the last one was, I will give you the kingdoms of the world if you bow down and worship me. Which to me was just, you know, what was Satan thinking? Because Jesus didn't 
even need that. But what he's doing is he's tempting Jesus not to go to the cross. Um, because he is, in fact, the accuser of the brethren. And so I, what I think this is also underscoring, again, with this imperfect uh, that, is, that is here, uh, it's telling us that while wisdom does have its advantages, and does wisdom have advantages? Better than ten men, right? Ten leaders. Um, we have limitations. Not necessarily that wisdom has limitations, but we have limitations. Because we don't always, we don't always, we don't always choose the godly path. Even though we have obtained a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness and faith in Christ Jesus. Um, for many times, verse that's 22, I've got to do 21. For also do not take to heart everything that people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. We've got to do 22 with that. For at times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. Okay. <laughs> the drive through Anyway. <laughs> but uh, that woman to the, the guy who honked the horn, you know. So... Here's the thing is, is part of what I think this is telling us is, is, is a couple of things. One, when I, th- I think with criticism, there's usually some grain of truth. There may not be a whole lot of grain of truth. There may be, be barely even a recognizable grain of truth. But, but somebody has seen something that is prompt, and, and, and they very well could have a very critical spirit and be very judgmental, and often they are. Right, and, and they want to take you out and tar and feather you. But while there may be a grain of truth in criticism, some of them, maybe all of them, I don't know, uh, I think it's good not to pay too much attention to that. So I'll probably edit this out. More than once, I've sat and listened to someone rage and rampage and lose it on me for two cases was over four hours of why they were leaving the church. Um, And I thought to myself after that second time, why do I do this to myself? Um, So I no longer entertain that with folks because it, it... it probably didn't do that person any good other than the catharsis of releasing that emotion. It didn't help him grow spiritually uh, other than reinforce his already critical spirit. And all it did was make me just feel bad. We'll just say bad. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, you don't want to completely neglect your critics either, but I would say don't pay too much attention to it. And what this is talking about, who, who, you read this, didn't you, uh, Cindy? Um, oh, Bonnie, you read it. Read this for us, 21, please, again, could you read that for I thought the translation is interesting on that.
Yeah. Don't eavesdrop. If you get so obsessed with what they are saying about you that you start eavesdropping. Now, I actually knew a pastor that climbed a telephone pole and tapped somebody's phone one time. And I like this guy, but I, just, I, I couldn't believe he was doing this. Uh, talk about obsessed. Um, there's a lot to that backstory that I don't want to tell you, but um, what? It, it is criminal. He was trying to protect his, his daddy, Chuck Smith. That is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. You know, I hate bumper stickers, but my favorite one that I would put on my truck would be kill your television. But I think right next to it, I would be kill Facebook. Um, yeah, I, I I think that's, yeah, I, I don't think it has done us, I think a lot of social media has probably not done us much favors. Um, But I think that's part of it, you know. It, it, so this eavesdropping, because you can hear your servant talking bad about you or cursing you. And I think it was, I uh, can't remember who it was. I think it was Pascal. Uh, I think he said that if everybody knew, this, now he's, he's many of age, all right? coming out of the medieval ages. He said, if everybody knew what everybody said about everybody, everybody would have about four friends. Now, that's probably an exaggeration. At least I hope it is. Um, but again, we have, we're, we're people who have been saved by grace, yet we, we don't always live according to righteousness. And I think the biggest challenges for each and every one of us is not our dog, not our neighbor's dog. It's not, it, it, but often, of course, I'm not talking about cousin Tim, but often your neighbor or the people that live around you or the people in the store. Uh, we went to Winco the other day, and there was like way too many people, and I wanted to go find the manager and ask him to make an announcement and ask a bunch of people to leave because it was just way too crowded. Um, and it wasn't that bad um, Monday, right? That explains it all. But um, because we all think very differently. We do um, on different things. And sometimes we're just fascinated by our differences. Sometimes we're flat out irritated. And, and so it's what I think part of what Solomon is recognizing is he's also admitting that these things just do happen. And so, you know, let them have their four hours and 15 minutes. I timed him. Let him have his four hours and 15 minutes somewhere else with someone else. And the, the interesting thing is, is, you know, I learned this really early when someone comes to me and they complain about their last church and they complain about their last pastor. Given, them, given enough time, guess what they're going to do next? Complain about us and complain about me. Because that's who they are. Um, 
So, you know, at times um, we can be guilty uh, of accusing others. Uh, Back to Ecclesiastes 5, verse 2, it says, Do not be rash with your mouth, and let not your heart utter, utter anything hastily before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. So, this idea of wisdom guards our thoughts, wisdom guards our, guards our speech, and then wisdom guards our actions. And, and, uh, but it's, it's recognizing that we are very imperfect people, and this is kind of the environment that we live in due to the fall. So, uh, we're going to get done early tonight. What? Good. <laughs> Everybody said good. All right. Now let's close in prayer. Um, so says all this I have proved by wisdom. Notice I have proved by, what's the oldest? 19 through 22 is the oldest that he's talking about. All right. All this, <coughs> excuse me, that I proved or I have tested, that's probably what some of your translations has. I have tested by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but it was far from me. Who's writing this? Solomon. Who was the, really the wisest man who ever lived. And yet he's saying, I've said to myself, I will be wise, but it was far from me. Now he did some pretty bonehead things, didn't he? Especially with all his wives and his concubines, which might have influenced a little bit about what he wrote about toward the end of this chapter. That's the possibility, because he's writing from his experience. Um, but he said it was far from him. He's making all these observations about life under the sun, which is another way, really, I thought about this, life under the sun, all things under the sun, is another way of saying life in the fallen world or life in the fallen state of the world and how everything is incredibly imperfect um, and that we need wisdom to walk in it. Um, But it was far from him, he said. So it's really asking the question is, what is the value of wisdom? What's the value of wisdom in, in, in a fallen world even with the righteous sin? I think part of the value, what he's saying here in verse 23, is part of the value of wisdom is to recognize our limitations. Is that? Things would be even worse because you would go from wisdom to folly. Part of what he's saying, too, is that, that not that wisdom will only take us so far, but I think what he is saying, that our ability to comprehend wisdom in a given situation is at times limited. Uh, Paul talked about this to the Corinthians. I think it's actually Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13. We see in part and we know in part. And so we, we, we're only ever given 
a part of the picture. Yeah, we can only do so much with these earthly bodies or even these earthly minds. I think it's beyond comprehension, but I think, and there's a, that's, the, that's like the $10 million question. Because do, does wisdom possess you or do you possess it? Or both? Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, of whom there is no variance or shadow of turning. Every good and perfect gift comes down from. In other words, it comes down from the Father to us. And, and um, the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts are things that I think we are given, uh, given the mandate, if you will, to steward them well. Um, but at the same time, the fruit of the Spirit Singular. The fruit of the Spirit is not really anything that really is produced in and of our own effort other than yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So it's this, it's to me, it's a very, it's a very, it's not even a fine line, it's a, just an undefined um, context. It's too hard. It's too hard. If we have time, I want to look at Proverbs 9 uh, regarding that and would encourage you guys to read it tomorrow at some point, uh, being that today's the 8th. But anyway, uh, so, I, yeah, I think it's a very, it's almost like a nebulous. That to me, I, I like that better than fine line because I think fine line tries to slice and dice too much. And I... I I think when we are talking about these things, it's not hard to get to take us from the realm of a, a level of certainty to a level of speculation, and and say, you know, this is what it appears, uh, but I'm not sure. But this is what it appears to be, right? Um, and I think that's. That's even part of it where the wisest man who ever lived said, said to himself, I will be wise, but it was far from him. Um, As for which is far off, verse 24, and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I mean, that, I mean, that really kind of just backs up what I, what I just said. Um, for what is uh, exceedingly deep, who can find it out? I think it's an it's a important question. And... Excuse me. For fun, I want to read you one of my favorite verses. Psalm 42, which is the beginning of book two. It's in the context of verse six. Oh, my God, my soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I will remember you from the land uh, of Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from the hills of Mizar. And then it says, Deep calls unto deep at the noise of your waterfalls, and all your waves and billows have gone over me. And so it's, it's this idea of, and this is where I think it would, wisdom, that is a, gr- a gift from God, would possess you or endow you with something. And that is the, the depth of God 
the soul of God, the depth of the soul of God, crying out to the depths of our soul. Because, and I know this might sound weird, but I've said this before, and I didn't get really any, well, except for a couple of weird looks, but that's okay. Um, there are things I know I understand, but I just don't know why I understand them. To the point where I can't really even articulate it. But you just have, you just have this deep, guttural sense that this is what we've got to do. And this is what is what's true in this situation. Um, I want to get to the, to the we've got 10 minutes, but I want to get to the women thing. Right? You've been waiting on this, haven't you? Um, so I applied my heart, verse 25, to search and seek out wisdom and reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even the foolishness uh, uh, and madness. So he would, he, part of his search for wisdom was he was trying to identify that which was not wise. And the extreme of that would be um, to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness and mad, um, even of foolishness and madness. So, yeah, so it, it's, he's recognizing those things that are not wise. Uh, although, what is it? Is it James? It went in and out of my brain, this idea to be, to be wise in the things of God, but to be, be innocent in the things of, of evil. But, again, we are talking about the wisest man who ever lived, and so he's exploring these things, and he's kind of coming back. Part of this is he's coming back to us after his lifelong fact-finding mission, if you will. So, um, and I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters, he who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sin shall be trapped by her. The sinner shall be trapped by her. So he's slamming this idea of the women who, whose, whose heart is snares and nets. Let me get back to that. Verse 27, here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to another to find out the reason which my soul still seeks but cannot find. So he's still on a search. Um, One man, I cannot find one man among a thousand I have found. One man among a thousand I have found. But a woman among all these I have not found. To find out the reason which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand I have found. A, a woman among all these I have not found. The NIV says, verse 28 if one of you could read it. Okay. So one upright. ESV uh, 28 says, does it say basically the same thing, uh, Cindy? Okay. So is that saying that women are not upright? I don't think that's what he's saying either. Um, I want to eat tonight. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> okay, so let's tie this together. The woman who, whose heart is snares and nets. 
Saw a Proverbs 8. Proverbs 8. No, I'm sorry. Proverbs 7. It was last night's. Now, you have to remember this guy had over 700 wives and 300 concubines. Most of, it's like, what do you do with that? You know, most of the women that he married were political marriages. Most of these women were not followers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, It even tells us in the scriptures that his wives led his heart astray. So that's part of what's tempering some of what he's writing here. Um, But what is interesting is that women in the scriptures, but particularly with what Solomon has written, uh, women is a symbol of both wisdom and folly. Both. So in Proverbs 7, I've got to find the verse for you. Um, it says in verse 4, it says, Say to wisdom, you are my sister. What does that mean? He's calling wisdom. He's personifying wisdom as the feminine. All right? You are my sister. And call understanding your nearest kin that they may keep you from what? The immoral woman. Now he goes into this long idea or long uh, um, description. And he describes this this woman uh, who is lurking at every corner, verse 12. How she caught this man and kissed him and with an impudent face, verse 13, said to him, I have peace offerings with me today. I paid my vows. So come out to meet me diligently to seek your face. I came out to meet you diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. I spread my bed with tapestry, colors of Egyptian linen, perfume, uh, my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let's take our fill of love until morning. So uh, my husband's not home, all of that, right? Um, and it talks about um, she entices him and he gives into it, and it says in verse 27, her house is a way to hell and descending into the chambers of death. So it's using the idea of the immoral woman as someone who will be uh, giving themselves over to unrighteousness and to folly. But then he flips that. Look at verse one of chapter nine. Actually, before that, verse eight or chapter uh, one. I'm sorry, chapter eight, verse one. Uh, Does not wisdom cry out and under and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on top of the high hill, besides the way where the past meet. She cries out by the gates and enter at the entrance of the city at the entrance of the doors, to you, O men, I call, and my voice is the sons of men. O you simple ones, understand prudence, and fools be of an understanding heart. 
So wisdom is then personified as a woman. Chapter 9, wisdom has built her. What's her mean? Feminine. Her house. She has honed out her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has furnished her table. She has cried out her ma- She has sent out her maidens. She cries out from the highest place of the city. Wherever is simple, let him come in here. So she's inviting the simple in to her house. It's a contrast to the immoral woman who invited this one man into her house. But now wisdom personified as a woman is, is, is uh, told, uh, let, it, let him turn in here for him who lacks understanding. She says to him, come eat my bread and drink of the wine I mix. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. So you have this idea here that the woman whose heart is snares and nets, he's kind of referring to Proverbs 7. Now, there were some things that I read that, that this one guy, and it was like, and I really like this guy, and this is probably the worst thing that he's ever written, in my opinion, where he was talking about, well, it's, we, we live in a fallen world, and it's the tension and the difficulty between man and wife and all that. And I'm just like, no, click. And, you know, uh, but that's how some people would interpret this passage. I, I think he's, in, in verse 26 at least, He's hearkening back to Proverbs 7. That's what I think he's doing. I think he did, but he also, I think, it's like he lost, he lost any good sense. Most of these, well, the concubines could, could be more of the weakness, if you will. Uh, but m- most of the marriages were, were, again, they were, this idea of uh, a way of forming a treaty. We even see this with what Henry VIII is an example of that. Yeah. And, and, but it was, it was a way of making a treaty, but the scripture tells us in 1 Kings 11 that these women turned his heart toward other gods. That's what it says. 1 Kings 11, 1 through 8, if you want to look at it later. But um, so that might explain what he's saying in verse 28. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. I think he's, he's um, giving us his experience. And if you've got... 700 wives and 300 concubines, that's about all you got time for, all right? That, I mean, that and, and you know, your, your advisors and, you know, in other words, his world was very limited. Does that make sense? And, and the fact that he was able to go outside the palace to make these observations really does say something, I think, in a positive light about him. Um, but that's how I would look at that. I don't think this is a universal at all. <laughs> I, don't, um, I don't even think he necessarily had a negative view of women other than, again, if he wouldn't have married these women, he wouldn't have this issue. 
So it really, for whatever reason, power. Um, it was a, Richard Foster wrote a book one time. I read it, and I really need to reread it. Um, Money, Sex, and Power. And how those, those, those are the three things that are a downfall on, uh, with people. Um, and I think, I think he, Solomon really succumbed to all three of those things. And so, um, but it makes his experience limited still when he says things like this, at least in my opinion. Any other thoughts? Ladies, do you feel better now? No? No? Yes? Never felt bad? No? <laughs> You're like, whatever. <laughs> Just want to hear are you going to get out of this one. See, this is, and too bad Brian isn't here because this is where I was almost saying, let's go to the back of the book after, the, you know, anyway. One more verse, we're done. Uh, truly, this is only, this is only, truly, this only I have found. That God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Okay, God made man upright, right? But they have sought out many schemes. That word schemes really refers to this idea of an elaborate systemic plan of action. That's what it refers to. An elaborate systematic plan of action, which is the opposite of Proverbs 3 where we lean not on our own understanding as Proverbs 3 tells us, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will do what? He will direct your path. So let's pray.